As I explained before, we think the spirit of a 17th century Moldavian tyrant is alive and well in a painting at the Manhattan Museum of Art. He's drawing strength from a psychomagnetic slime flow that's been collecting under the city. Yes, tell me about the slime. It's very potent stuff. We made a toaster dance with it. Toaster. And a bathtub tried to eat his friend's baby. A bathtub? Don't look at me. I think these people are completely nuts. That. But the greenhouse effect is one that has to be a threat to all of us. And I just don't see any ghosts anywhere. There are some things in this world that go way beyond human understanding. We have a planetary emergency. Somebody get me the ghost bus. <laughs> my fellow paranormal investigators and eliminators. It's hard to believe that we're back here. Not here, as in, in lieu of, the internet's latest and greatest podcast about old stuff you kinda remember. But rather, here, as in the summer of 1989. I mean, it feels like we were just here, right? Like, two issues ago. Okay, uh, let me see what I can do about this. How about, how about New Year's Eve 1989? That's not when this particular movie came out, but it is when this particular movie takes place. So we'll go with that. Thank you so much for tuning in today, kiddos. I'm so glad you're here. And if I have to confess, I'm, I'm, a, I'm slightly more glad to be Dixby Caravaggio. Of course, I could just as likely be Dixby the Cruel, Dixby the Torturer, Dixby the Despised, or Dixby the Unholy. I don't know about you, but am I ever ready to slide down a fireman's pole, hop right into Ecto-1, and bust some ghosts? But first, we really ought to tediously review the intersection of emerging scientific consensus on global climate change with wider public awareness in the late 1980s. But then, ghosts. From the point where decades-long study collides with lay expectations of the planet and its resources, I'm interested to see where this debate, one we're still having today, and one that's only become more volatile in the 21st century, bubbles to the surface. Perhaps in a place you wouldn't think to look. Perhaps in a less well-regarded sequel to another global phenomenon. One not as concerned with the climate as it is with focused, non-terminal, repeating phantasms and Class 5 full-roaming vapors. You know, the real nasty ones. In lieu of an honest dialogue about the cause of a changing climate and why its cause is so seemingly contentious, why did Ghostbusters 2 present us with a river of pink slime? Volume 1, Issue 3, I shouldn't even have to ask, but who are you going to call? We're the best, we're the beautiful, we're the only Ghostbusters!
Okay, okay, okay. Forget what I said before. We're doing Ghostbusters stuff first, and then global warming. I promise. We will. We will. We will definitely get to to global warming. Trust me, though, kiddos. I I, I really need to get this off my my chest. Today's issue. Today's show is especially painful for me. This show, in lieu of, compels me to ask mm, slightly different questions of Ghostbusters Two. Instead of confronting the burning questions that have been shackled in the depths of my soul since this movie first premiered. What questions, you ask? Huh. Well, I, I happen to have a list of them right, right here. Let me see. Let me go to... Okay, there they are. Where was Janine Melnitz working during the five years between movies? What really happened between Dana Barrett and Peter Venkman? And did they end up staying together after Ghostbusters 2? How did the Statue of Liberty get all the way back to Liberty Island? Are the Ghostbusters now permanently beloved by the city, or does New York City ultimately sour on them like they did after the first movie? How unnerved was everyone else when the painting of Vigo the Carpathian winked at Dana in the museum? Why were all the kids at the birthday party obsessed with He-Man when half of the freaking Ghostbusters were in their living room. I was the same age as those little brats and I hated those kids when I saw this movie. Ghostbusters 2 terrified me when I saw it. I distinctly recall watching this late one night with my parents. My dad usually would bring home a a fresh, newly minted VHS from the local video store on Fridays, and we would all watch it together. That night, after the movie was over, I remember I I had so many nightmares uh, about Vigo, uh, about Janos Poha's glowing eyes in Dana's hallway, or his spectral nanny form outside of her bedroom window when he came to abduct Oscar. And what may have been the worst for me, the slime in the bathtub. I thought Ghostbusters 2 was scarier than the original. And I still do. I mean, this is not to disrespect the 1984 classic. Critics of Ghostbusters 2 are right to point out the sequel's more kid-friendliness. You know, it was lighter on the swearing. Most people weren't as impressed with the story, I guess. But none of that bothered me at the time. Because I was a kid, I guess. And the movie was largely made for me. But I have to confess that those feelings I had for this sequel as a kid, I mean... Those feelings are the same ones that I have now as an adult. There are just big things about Ghostbusters 2 I find superior to the original Ghostbusters. Vigo and the other ghosts in the second movie are legitimately scarier than their predecessors. Okay, maybe not the Scolari brothers from the courtroom scene, but what about the fur coat that comes to life? The abandoned subway with the severed heads in the phantom train. That giant Cloverfield-looking thing in Washington Square Park. I mean, come on. Also, the main villain's plot isn't as convoluted as the first's. So let me get this straight. A nut named Evo Shandor thought that humanity was doomed. So after World War I, he designed a building in Manhattan as a gateway to summon Gozer the Gozerian to destroy the world. And it just so happens that Zool, a demonic servant of Gozer, haunts said building, waiting until 1984 for a woman to move into the corner apartment so Zool can possess her and become the gatekeeper, while concurrently, another tenant in the demonic building gets possessed by Vin's Clortho, the keymaster. Then they both turn into giant hell dogs, at last summoning Gozer, who, while being a shape-shifting entity, chooses to take the form of an era-appropriate, glittery, gem-in-the-holograms cast-off. 
Yeah, that was Ghostbusters. And and let's be honest, fueling enough anger across the tri-state area in an effort to feed off said anger in order to possess an infant by the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve 1989 so that you can grow into your adult self and conquer the planet is a bit less ham-fisted, am I right? It's not just those bigger things, but some of the little stuff, too, that I just find to be superior. For instance, Ray Stans and his charming occult bookshop. Uh, what about the humbling triumph of the mighty Peter Venkman as he risks it all for a baby he admits should be his child? He only admits this to the baby, of course. And we're going to talk about this next part later, but the weaponization of Jackie Wilson's song Higher and Higher. Also, Janine and Lewis's relationship. I mean, who didn't see that coming? Even how the movie picks up. Five years on from Gozer's defeat. Five years and everyone's kind of bleh. Dana is divorced, but not from Venkman, and she has a baby. Ray and Winston do demeaning birthday parties for, quote, overprivileged nine-year-olds, end quote. Egon Spengler is back at the university. And Peter? He hosts a hacky psychic talk show. The only person doing kind of okay is Louis Tully, who got his law degree at night school for some reason. Wasn't he a tax accountant, or maybe he was a tax attorney in Ghostbusters? Someone go look it up. All of our favorite characters are just there, getting on with life and all its drudgeries. That is, of course, until the slime. So, your old pal Dixby was never high on slime in any of its varieties. This may border on blasphemy, but I never really liked Slimer or his Ecto-1 cooler juice box. Sorry, it was just never my thing. I remember cringing at people getting slimed on Family Double Dare. Or when the Ghostbusters toy commercial slimed the action figures. It's the real Ghostbusters Firehouse playset. Megman, our firehouse is haunted. No way. Oh, no. I've been gooped. Ding, 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 Ghost ding, ding, of the stadium. Ding, ding, ding. The real Ghostbusters, each sold separately, ah. assembly required. Don't get me wrong, I loved that firehouse. I think it's still in my parents' attic somewhere. You'd put the guy on the platform, and, he, and he'd whiz down the pole and hop into Ecto-1. Yeah, of course I had the car too. I mean, it was all just glorious. But I never did the slime part. As seen in that commercial, kids were supposed to pour slime down the open grate in the roof, covering one or several action figures in the sticky stuff. Yeah, Hasbro or Mattel or whoever was making these toys actually sold retail slime that you could pour on all of your toys. It just wasn't for me. I mean, the thought of being covered in slime made my skin crawl. <laughs> well, however I feel about the slime, it's something that you really can't ignore when you're watching Ghostbusters 2. It's the first thing we see in the film. It's integral to the antagonist's evil plan. It's as much a character as Winston or Janine. Just like my personally tenuous relationship with slime as a kid, the movie's use of the substance always scared me at a deeper level than Gozer ever could. Does Vigo winking at Dana scare me? It did and it still does. Does the scene where photographs of Vigo catch on fire while Egon and Ray are trapped in the darkroom still creep into my nightmares? You bet. But the slime can do things. It can change you. It can be everywhere at once. The slime can be manipulated into an instrument of destruction and ghostly resurrections. 
Or it can be manipulated in the other direction to make appliances dance or monuments walk. The appearance of the slime is menacingly gradual. It seeps through a sidewalk crack where the slightest contact with a stroller's wheel is enough to compel said stroller into traffic away from Dana and with baby Oscar inside. That's the very first scene of this movie. Prior to this moment where the stroller is careening around cars and trucks in the middle of the street in Manhattan, the audience gets its first taste of the mood, the general mood of the tri-state area. Angry, rude, self-centered, caricatured New Yorkers as seen through the lens of people who don't live in New York. We've got an upset commuter and a parking cop arguing over a towed car. We have a man running into a woman with crutches. We have Dana's building superintendent and maintenance man bickering over something broken in the basement. Horns honking, strained tones, everyone is hurried and miserable. This, we learn later, is the reason for the possessed stroller's malevolence. After studying the slime, Ray and Egon conclude it's, quote, a psychoreactive substance that responds to human emotional states, end quote. Or, as Venkman so succinctly puts it, mood slime. Listen to the slime bubble and spew as the guys take turns dressing it down. You! You worthless piece of slime! You ignorant, disgusting blob! You're nothing but an unstable short-chain molecule! You foul, obnoxious mob! Have a weak electrochemical bond. I have seen some disgusting crud in my time, but you take the case. So let me see if I follow this. If every person on that street where Dana was walking with her stroller were joyous instead of angry, perhaps the stroller would have started dancing around, or maybe it would have even protected baby Oscar from harm. But as Winston puts it, the slime was, quote, feeding off bad vibes, end quote. The Ghostbusters investigation leads the team to the street where Dana's stroller took off. The PKE and Geigometer don't lie. I think Shakira said that. Which indicates some serious paranormal energy beneath the surface. Ray draws the short straw and ends up, in his words, quote, dangling like a worm on a hook a hundred feet below First Avenue, end quote. He finds himself suspended above the old pneumatic transit system to find... The Ghostbusters are quickly arrested at the scene and put on trial for violating a court order rendered sometime between the first movie and this one. The court order forbidding them from ghostbusting, essentially. Ray does manage to secure some slime, though, which rests quietly, for the moment, in a container on the evidence table. The slime, the proton packs, none of this looks good for our boys. They're looking at serving lengthy prison terms at this point. And the slime remains very quiet, remains very still until the judge, who is clearly no fan of the Ghostbusters, keeps shouting and getting increasingly more angry. This, in turn, keeps agitating the slime. Find you guilty on all charges. Order you to pay fines in the amount of $25,000 each. I sent you to 18 months in the city correctional facility at Rikers Island. Evie, she's twitching. I'm not finished! More personal note, let me just go on record as saying that there's no place for fake charlatans. Uh, Your Honor? Shut up! Fixers like you in decent society. Your Honor, this is important. You play on the gullibility of innocent people. Yes, sir. Be quiet. But 
my hands are untied by the unalterable fetters of the law, and I would invoke the tradition of our illustrious forebears. Reach back to a pure justice and have you It finally crescendos, you know, it finally blows up. And after said explosion happens, it somehow summons to life the Scolari brothers. With all of the chaos and the and the ghosts flying around and everyone screaming and fleeing the room, the judge begrudgingly rescinds the conviction and the previous court order, thus allowing the Ghostbusters to do their thing and maybe even gain back a bit of the public's trust. Vigo, however, the main antagonist of this film, has not been idle. He has revealed himself to the head of restoration at the Manhattan Museum of Art, Janos Poha. Some side notes here. Dana actually works at the museum while taking a break from the orchestra. Of course, Janos, like every other straight guy in the Ghostbusters universe, has a crush on Dana. Janos is eventually possessed by Vigo the Carpathian, and all of this will be integral to setting up the third act of the movie. Janos is the Louis Tully from Ghostbusters 1 of Ghostbusters 2. Vigo orders the possessed Janos out into the world in order to find a child so that Vigo can be reincarnated as a baby and grow up to eventually conquer the 21st century. Dana Barrett has a baby boy. The writing's on the wall, isn't it? Yeah, I will. Yeah, yeah sure, we'll get right on it. Spangler, a major slime-related psychokinetic event. What happened? Something came out of Dana's bathtub, tried to grab her and the baby. Are they all right? Yeah, well, she got out of there and went over to Venkman's. This is interesting, Ray. Remember the painting Venkman mentioned? Uh-huh. Ran the name Vigo the Carpathian through the occult reference net. Look what came up. Ooh, nice ugly history. You think there's a connection between this Vigo character and the... Slime? It's the atomic weight of cobalt, 58.9. It doesn't take the guys long to tie the slime to Vigo. After running a photo of the Vigo painting through the spectrometer, Ray sees a familiar sight flanking Vigo on both sides. What the hell is that? I know what it is. I've seen it before. Where? When you guys had me dangling like a worm on a hook 100 feet below First Avenue. That's the river of slime. So is the slime all the masterwork of a long-dead Carpathian sorcerer warlord? The answer is... sort of. Ray, Egon, and Winston go back underground to find the source of the slime flow. They come upon the same section of tunnel that Ray dangled above earlier. Unbelievable. Huh? Did I tell you? I wasn't lying, was I? negative energy it must have taken to generate a flow this size. Hey, New York, what a town. That's a great throwaway line from Winston, isn't it? What a town indeed. But what if we can't, or at the very least, what if we shouldn't dismiss that line so quickly? What did Egon say again? Something about the amount of negative energy needed to create a slime flow the size of an underground river? How can the Ghostbusters make that determination? I mean, for all of their hours of research and experimentation, what do they really know about the slime? Did NYC's collective negative energy really create it? Or did all that energy just turn the slime evil? I think calling into question Egon's assumption here is a more engrossing and, 
Yes, more scary proposition. Okay, heads up for all you lovers of in-universe lore. Up to this point in this podcast, we've talked a lot about fear. In fact, and I've been remiss not to bring this up sooner, this inaugural volume of In Lieu Of is chiefly concerned with all different kinds of fear, hence the title, Cultured Fear. In issue one, we learned about consumer fears and the fear of changing bodies. In the last issue, we talked about the fear of the unknown, about things that must absolutely be real and thus must absolutely be feared. Here, though, in volume one, issue three, we find a different kind of fear, more than one, actually. It's not so much the fear of the unknown as it is the fear of not knowing. It sounds similar, but think about it for a sec. In 1989's Batman, the Joker really is killing people, although no one knows how until Batman jumps in. And in the X-Files episode The Host, the fluke man really is killing people as well, although no one knows how until Mulder and Scully jump in. Ghostbusters 2 presents us with a different challenge. How do our heroes jump in this time when no one can agree that there really truly is a problem for them to solve? The fear of not knowing something may not scare you. You may not even bat an eye when a Ghostbuster hurries past you, proton pack in tow, on his or her way to catch a ghost. They're frauds, right? Or at least misguided. Huh. But what if they're not wrong? As we'll talk about soon in the second half, when it comes to Ghostbusters 2, the fear of not knowing may only be second to the fear of being wrong about what it is we think we know. Whether or not climate change is anthropogenic, as in caused by humans, is one of the most contentious points about the topic. And, weirdly, it's also where I get stuck thinking about the slime. As in, is the slime anthropogenic or not? Did Vigo create it? Or has it always been here? Is the slime a byproduct of the planet, or of mankind's arrival and subsequent manipulation of the planet? The slime goes from commandeering a small baby carriage to causing New York's mayor to exclaim, Get me the Ghostbusters. Its slow onset, its gradualness, reflects how anthropogenic climate change slowly came to the fore of public consciousness in the United States. That is, according to Dr. Suzanne C. Mosier, a social science research fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University and a research associate at the University of California, Santa Cruz, Institute for Marine Sciences. I remember doing a current events project about global warming in elementary school. Do you remember where your teacher would say, go find something in the Sunday newspaper and then write a report about it and bring it in and share it with the class? It was one of those things. I was looking through the newspaper and happened to see a big headline about global warming. So I picked that. I also remember someone from my class doing their project on Freaknik, which sounded intensely more fascinating than what I was talking about. 
Aside from Danny DeVito's penguin shouting, Stop global warming! Start global cooling! in 1992's Batman Returns, I never thought about climate change until well after George W. Bush became president and a caricature, and Vice President Al Gore became a full-time environmental activist and a caricature. I think it's safe to say that the 2006 release of Gore's An Inconvenient Truth thrust the subject into a place where both sides had to reckon with it. And how did this reckoning go? For something as complex as global climate change, the art of towing the political party line was reduced to whether or not you agreed with Al Gore. The topic started to focus around him and not so much the issue. It wasn't about whether you agreed with the science, but rather with the former future president, like Gore and the science were somehow interlinked, with citizens having to either love or hate both equally. Do you remember that famous line? He may still use it. I am Al Gore. I used to be the next president of the United States. That line did more to resurrect old arguments than to embolden the momentum for new ones. Selling the public on whether to believe or to deny anthropogenic climate change became a proxy battle to relitigate the 2000 election, to retry Bush v. Gore. I mean, look at the way it broke down. Hollywood had its scion. Conservative talk radio had its lightning rod. But again, what did any of this have to do with the cause of or with the solution to the problem? As the clock ticks closer to the new year and as Vigo's power grows, the effects of the slime begin to, well, affect a larger portion of the population. Is this a big dinosaur or a little dinosaur? Oh, just a skeleton. Huh? Well, which way was it heading? Wait a sec. What was chasing you in the park? Everyone starts panicking, and the mayor's office starts intervening. Who are they going to call? It's obvious in a Ghostbusters movie. Vigo wants it on the 21st century. He needs a human body to inhabit. Little Oscar must be it. And I bet we're the only ones who can do anything about it, right? You bet we are. But why them? Haven't the Ghostbusters been written off by most of the people? Sure, we get a wonderful montage of the boys battling the supernatural after they're exonerated in court. But is that enough for the city to place their trust in them again? I'm skeptical, I guess, because... When it comes to the sciencey things, we usually run to political leaders and media personalities instead of scientific authorities. The New Yorkers of Ghostbusters 2 turn to the Ghostbusters for, you know, ghosty things. But we have a harder time in real life naming any prominent scientist specializing in climate science. Unless they're Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye, we don't know them. But what about Sean Hannity's position on global warming or Rachel Maddow's? I think we've got that covered. Hey, look, I'm not here listing out any prominent climate scientists either, because until I started researching for this issue, I didn't know any. If only James Hansen had a primetime TV show on cable news or packed a proton pack. While he has the distinction of climate scientist and former NASA director, James Hansen is also famous for another thing being the father of global awareness of climate change. Huh, I didn't know someone could father that. 
In June 1988, Hansen went before the United States Senate to give testimony on global warming, CO2 emissions, and the greenhouse effect, prompting the Washington Post to write, quote, Man-made gases that trap solar heat, resulting in the so-called greenhouse effect, have left the Earth warmer today than ever before and increased the likelihood of the type of drought now parching U.S. farmland, end quote. Think about that. The greenhouse effect was new to everyone who wasn't already studying it. And the most famous greenhouse gas, carbon dioxide, was about to become elemental non grata. At this point in the issue, I would want Mr. Hansen to speak in his own voice, but it's surprisingly difficult to find that video from this particular Senate meeting on global warming. For the lovers of conspiracy out there, have at it. In the meantime, though, I'll read Hansen's opening statement. Quote, My principal conclusions are, 1. The Earth is warmer in 1988 than at any time in the history of instrumental measurements. 2. The global warming is now sufficiently large that we can ascribe with a high degree of confidence a cause and effect relationship to the greenhouse effect. And three, in our computer climate simulations, the greenhouse effect now is already large enough to begin to affect the probability of occurrence of extreme events, such as summer heat waves. The model results imply that heat wave slash drought occurrences in the southeast and midwest United States may be more frequent in the next decade than in climatological, that is, 1950 to 1980, statistics, end quote. The greenhouse effect was a debate topic in American party politics as early as the Hansen testimony. Asked to weigh in during the 1988 vice presidential debate were the Republican and Democratic senators Dan Quayle and Lloyd Benson. John Margolis, a question for Senator Benson. Senator, we've all just finished, uh, most America has just finished one of the hottest summers it can remember, and apparently this year will be the fifth out of the last nine that are among the hottest on record. No one knows, but most scientists think that uh, something we're doing, human beings are doing, are exacerbating this problem, and that this could, in a couple of generations, threaten our descendants' comfort and health, and perhaps even their existence. As Vice President, what would you urge our government to do to deal with this problem? And specifically as a Texan, could you support a substantial reduction in the use of fossil fuels which might be necessary down the road? Well, I think what you can do in that one, and which would be very helpful, is to use a lot more natural gas, which burns a lot cleaner. But the greenhouse effect is one that has to be a threat to all of us. And we have to look for alternative sources of fuel. And I've supported that very strongly. And the greenhouse effect is an important environmental issue. It is important for us to get the data in to see what alternatives we might have to the fossil fuels and make sure that we know what we're doing. And there are some explorations and things that we can consider in this area. The drought highlighted the problem that we have. And therefore, we need to get on with it. And in a George Bush administration, you can bet that we will. In 1992, the U.S. Senate approved the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. President at the time, George H.W. Bush, declared, quote, The United States fully intends to be the world's preeminent leader in protecting the global environment, end quote. Cap-and-trade legislation was popular in Congress in the 2000s, often gaining bipartisan support but never quite finding its way to the Oval Office. In 2008's political <clears throat> climate, and with Gore's documentary still fresh, you could rest assured that the subject would come up 
and would be addressed by both Senators John McCain and Barack Obama. The next question does come from the hall for Senator McCain. It comes from Section C over here, and it's from Ingrid Jackson. Ingrid? Senator McCain, I want to know, um, we saw that Congress moved pretty fast in the face of an economic crisis. I want to know what you would do within the first two years to make sure that Congress moves fast as far as environmental issues like climate change and green jobs. Well, thank you. Um, look, we are in tough economic times. We all know that. And let's keep, never forget the struggle that Americans are in today. But when we can, when we have an issue that we may hand our children and our grandchildren a damaged planet, I have disagreed strongly with the Bush administration on this issue. I traveled all over the world looking at the effects of greenhouse gas emissions. We can move forward and clean up our climate and develop green technologies and alternate, uh, alternative energies for, for hybrid, for hydrogen, for battery-powered cars so that we can clean up our environment and at the same time get our economy going by creating millions of jobs. We can do that. Senator Obama? This is one of the biggest challenges of our times, uh, and it is absolutely critical that we understand this is not just a challenge, it's an opportunity. Because if we create a new energy economy, we can create five million new jobs easily here in the United States. It can be an engine that drives us into the future the same way the computer was the engine for economic growth over the last couple of decades. And we can do it, but we're going to have to make an investment. We've got to understand this is a national security issue as well. And that's why we've got to make some investments. And I've called for investments in solar, wind, geothermal. He voted 23 times against alternative fuels. 23 times. So it's easy to talk about this stuff during a campaign. But it's important for us to under understand that it requires a sustained effort from the next president. Incoming President Obama put a spotlight on climate change, saying before the UN in 2009, quote, mankind has been slow to respond to or even recognize the magnitude of the climate threat. It is true of my own country as well. We recognize that. But this is a new day. It is a new era. And I am proud to say that the United States has done more to promote clean energy and reduce carbon pollution in the last eight months than at any other time in our history, end quote. But then we all saw how that turned out. Obama's climate action plan was quickly canceled by the Trump administration in 2017. That year, Trump also withdrew the U.S. from the Paris Agreement on climate change. I let those clips of the debates, I let them go on a little longer than I usually do or would have. Mainly because it's so fascinating to hear snippets of American political discourse where the acknowledgement of climate change isn't partisan. But like most things these days, the United States official policy on climate change largely depends on who's in the White House. Here we are some 30 years after Hansen's Senate testimony. 
And the signs are more apparent than ever that the climate is changing. Or has changed. Perhaps irreversibly. The signs aren't nebulous anymore, either. In early 2018, Chelsea Harvey published an article in Scientific America titled, Scientists Can Now Blame Individual Natural Disasters on Climate Change. As earth-shattering <clears throat> as that title may be, it's actually the subtitle that sticks out. Extreme event attribution is one of the most rapidly expanding areas of climate science. Harvey's piece traces the emergence of this subfield of attribution from a watershed report titled The Detection and Attribution of Human Influence on Climate in 2004, all the way to, quote, dozens of studies investigating the influence of climate change on events ranging from the Russian heat wave of 2010 to the California drought, end quote. More papers on this topic are flooding into peer-reviewed scientific and academic journals than ever before. Harvey singles out what made the 2004 report, the one that she, she points to as the origin, what made that report so monumentous. Quote, the key to the breakthrough was framing the question in the right way, not asking whether climate change caused the event, but how much it might have affected the risk of it occurring at all, end quote. So it would seem we have attribution now, but is that enough to manifest real change? Not if we're still arguing about our role in all of this, the human role in what's happening. How do I know? Because the Ghostbusters argued attribution too. Remember in the courtroom scene? The slime is the cause for the possessed baby stroller. But they don't succeed in convincing others of their position until the judge, ironically through his anger, proves them right. The judge blows his lid, then so does the slime. Whether the Ghostbusters are correct or not when they argue for attribution doesn't really matter by the end of the movie. People don't care about the cause of gruesome phantasms terrorizing moviegoers, a long-dead mayor phoning up the current mayor, and the better-late-than-never-I-guess arrival of the Titanic in New York Harbor. It is happening. It is real. Everyone agrees there's a problem, and if they can be bothered to be asked while fleeing for their lives, everyone agrees that the Ghostbusters should do something about it because they helped that one time when similar things were happening. Marshmallow men and hellhounds, possessed artwork and psychomagnetic slime. The crisis is revealed in all its frightening reality, no longer shrouded behind the scientific jargon, behind Egon and Ray's effortless technobabble. The crisis is real. It's real. It doesn't matter if the slime is causing it, because remember, the crisis is real, and its realness may be its most frightening feature. Say out loud in a room of Americans, the belief in climate change. And hardly a skewed glance will find you. It doesn't sound weird to us, that statement. Whereas the belief in gravity or the belief in photosynthesis would turn heads and might even relegate you to some strange corner of the internet. Now you may not like those comparisons, gravity, photosynthesis, and climate change. 
I'll give it to you, it's a little weak, a little facile, but come on, even the moniker Climate Denier, worn proudly by detractors and hurled pointedly by adherents, sounds off. The language of climate change and the way we talk about the science behind it, maybe unknowingly, but too often repeatedly, are couched in religious or spiritual belief terms. Just listen to the president when he's asked about, quote, a study produced by his own administration involving 13 federal agencies and more than 300 leading climate scientists warning of the potentially catastrophic impact of climate change, end quote. I've seen it. Uh, I've read some of it, and it's fine. Yeah, I don't believe it. No, no, I don't believe it. And, and here's the other thing. You're going to have to have China and Japan and all of Asia and all of these other countries, you know, addresses our country. Right now, we're at the cleanest we've ever been, and that's very important to me. But if we're clean, but every other place on Earth is dirty, that's not so good. So I want clean air, I want clean water, very important. According to a Gallup poll conducted in early 2016, quote, Americans are taking global warming more seriously than at any other time in the past eight years. Most emblematic is the rise of their stated concern about the issue. 64% of U.S. adults say they are worried a great deal or fair amount about global warming, up from 55% at the same time in 2015, and the highest reading since 2008, end quote. However, another poll conducted a month earlier by the same pollster showed that climate change as an issue ranked, quote, below average in importance to both parties, end quote, in the upcoming presidential election. Wait, what? That 2016 election saw Trump elected on a platform touting coal as, quote, an abundant, clean, affordable, reliable domestic energy resource, end quote, and asserting that, quote, climate change is far from the nation's most pressing national security issue, end quote. Listen to when he's asked about the report. Trump doesn't reject the science, but rather the report's efficacy to accurately predict future catastrophes. His casual dismissal of the climate report betrays the president's hand as he plays right into Spangler's, missing the point of Egon's tongue-in-cheek advice to the judge. Face to ghostly face with those he once condemned to death, the panicked, desperate judge begs the Ghostbusters to help, to do something. And then Egon responds with Warshack levels of shade. You gotta do something! Why don't you just tell them you don't believe in ghosts? The Ghostbusters ask rhetorically, who you gonna call? And I guess the question I'm posing in this issue would be, is it important what people think? How they choose to act? What they believe? Whether we agree or not that the topic is even something one can believe or disbelieve? Ghostbusters 2 says yes to this question on the importance of what people believe. In fact, it shouts yes. Remember those people, those New Yorkers fighting each other when Dana was pushing baby Oscar in his carriage? Those people so seemingly incensed by merely interacting with another member of their species. Hear me out. The Citizen Collective of New York City represents the film's most rounded out, most multidimensional character. 
Nuanced and exhaustingly fickle, the people of NYC who turned their backs on the Ghostbusters in 84, who, as Ray passionately puts it, quote, would just as soon step on your face as look at you, end quote, who, at their lowest, are the most in need of redemption. Ghostbusters. You've got two minutes. Make it good. Mr. Mayor, we're here tonight because a psychomagnetic slime flow of immense proportions is building up beneath the city. Psycho what? Psychomagnetic. Big, Big word. Does anybody speak English here? Uh, yeah, you, you, Your Honor. See, what we're trying to tell you is like all the bad feelings, I mean, all the hate, the anger, and violence of this city is turning into this sludge. Now, I didn't believe it at first either, but we just went for a swim in it, and we ended up almost killing each other. Lenny, have you been out on the street lately? Do you know how weird it is out there? We've taken our own headcount. There seem to be three million completely miserable assholes living in the tri-state area. What am I supposed to do? Go on television and tell 10 million people they have to be nice to each other? Being miserable and treating other people like dirt is every New Yorker's God-given right. When faced with the seemingly insurmountable task of penetrating the petrified slime encasing the museum with Vigo, Janos, Dana, and the baby trapped inside, the boys get desperate, perhaps more desperate than we've ever seen them. That slime wall is pulsing with evil. It would take a tremendous amount of positive energy to crack that shell, and I seriously doubt that there's enough goodwill left in this town to do it. You know, I just can't believe things have gotten so bad in the city that there's no way back. I mean, sure, it's dirty, it's crowded, it's polluted, it's noisy, and there's people all around who just as soon step on your face as look at you. But come on. There gotta be a few sparks of sweet humanity left in this burned out burg. We just have to figure out a way to mobilize it. He's right. We need something that everyone in this town can get behind. We need. a symbol. Something that appeals to the best in each and every one of us. Something good, something decent, something pure. What did they end up doing? Come on, you know. You know your love. The Ghostbusters repurposed an avatar for their city, something everyone could get behind. And I mean, come on, who's not going to get behind the Statue of Liberty just walking around casually in Midtown? It's established that Vigo can only be defeated by the Ghostbusters. But, as it turns out, Vigo is only defeatable when everyone starts believing. Belief is a prerequisite for their action. But having a universal savior like the Statue of Liberty is only half the game. You also need a universal enemy. Battery is swamped. We've had more than 3,000 calls since midnight last night. We've got every man in uniform on the streets, and I am still shorthanded. We got meter maids chasing ghosts all over Midtown. There's this shell thing over the Manhattan Museum of Art. We can't make a dent. Have you tried dynamite? Oh, what the hell's going on? It's pandemonium out yes, there. Yes, I, I know. We're working on it. Great. While you're working on it, I'm going down in history as the mayor who let New York get sucked down into the tenth level of hell. All right, we've got no choice. Call the Ghostbusters. Wait. Uh, 
Now, I'm, I'm sure there's another way. Jack, I spent an hour last night in my bedroom talking to Fiorello LaGuardia, and he's been dead for 40 years. Now, where are the Ghostbusters? The environment literally turns against the people. Only when this happens do the people act. And by act, I mean run for their lives. Because at this point, it's too late to do anything about it. Well, nearly too late. I love you when you With the help of the city turning its collective frown upside down, gallons and gallons of slime re-engineered with the positivity of Jackie Wilson, the Statue of Liberty, and yeah, even a little bit from Louis Tully, the Ghostbusters vanquish Vigo, subjugate the slime, and return the once-possessed Janos back into his old self, if maybe a little more optimistic than he was before. James Hansen's original 1988 Senate testimony video may have eluded me, but luckily that's not the only video of him online. He's done numerous talks and interviews. Here he is actually in 2013, closing out his TED Talk. Imagine a giant asteroid on a direct collision course with Earth. That is the equivalent of what we face now. Yet we dither, taking no action to divert the asteroid, even though the longer we wait, the more difficult and expensive it becomes. We can see a giant asteroid, or the expectation is we would see it before it's too late. Is it scary enough to be equivalent to a giant Earth-seeking asteroid? So far, the answer has been largely no at least in the U.S. The New Yorkers of Ghostbusters 2 were pushed to the edge's edge before they joined hands and voices under the displaced Statue of Liberty, immobilizing Vigo long enough for the boys to send him back to hell I wonder what our avatar will be. I wonder what event or events will precede our avatar, will be our Vigo. A universal evil so terrible that no one can look away. Is it already here? And can we really afford to wait to find out? The UN warns that we have 12 years to limit climate change catastrophe. Then you come across a 2018 article from The Verge titled, About Half of Americans Don't Think Climate Change Will Affect Them. Here's Why. Here's Why? Who cares? Maybe people will stop arguing about the details when they can see their lives and livelihoods are at stake. When there exists real danger manifested right in front of their eyes to threaten them with real harm and imperil their actual lives. The ultimate lesson of Ghostbusters 2 is to wait. Just wait it out. Wait for it, whatever it is, 
To get so bad that people have no choice but to believe. To get involved, to mobilize because they've been unarguably affected, impacted, devastated by it. Let's hope that, oh, what the hell, let's believe that when the time comes, we'll find that same uniting positivity that lifted New York from their lowest lows. That the assuagement of a common struggle and the pursuit of an uncommon love can and will take us higher and higher. Oh, I need to sit down. I need a breather after that, kiddos. There was so much stuff in there. I got to tell you, it, it this this issue had uh, this is probably the most affecting um, it, emotional issue for me. I think um, the parts where we're talking about climate change and global warming, um, it's it's hard to talk about it sometimes, and it's hard to find the right voice, which is important on a podcast. But then when I would switch and talk about that film, that wonderful, wonderful, silly, silly film, Ghostbusters 2. You should have seen me, kiddos. I was, I was dancing. I was, I was singing along with Jackie Wilson. Uh, I was, I was spinning around. I couldn't be contained. I love this movie so much. It was such a huge, huge part of me growing up. God, I love the Ghostbusters. Anyway, remember, 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 kiddos, you can always reach out to me. Uh, you can email me at dixby at inlueofpod.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at inlueof underscore podcast. There's always a lot of weird, nerdy things popping up on there. Go check it out. What else? What else? Well, I can hear the music behind me, and that means we're kind of wrapping things up. Is there something that I usually do at this point in the issue? I've only done a few of these, and I can't really remember if I... Oh, yeah, I remember my my usual sign-off. Okay, here it goes. In lieu of a more... What? Oh. Oh. Well, that's... Yeah, that's a that's a much better idea. We should do that. Let's let, go ahead and play that. I have absolutely no idea what that's alluding to. But until then, in lieu of a more psychomagnetic host, I've been yours truly, Dixby Caravaggio. Later. Later.